This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. It's something of a mantra around the political theater podcast crew. Politics never sleeps. The 2024 election season has been taking shape for a while now. Candidates are starting to announce they're running. People are retiring. Strategists are test driving issues they hope will click with the voters or at least tell them which ones are not clicking with the voters so they can pivot. Still, it is early. It's kind of early. And there's a lot of time between now and the primaries that will record the first official votes of the 2024 election cycle. So what's a curious political animal to do? What should they be paying attention to? What thing that feels important now might fizzle by election day? What are some things we might not see coming that will become important? Joining us to discuss how to predict the future is Nathan Gonzalez, Roll Call's elections analyst and the publisher of Inside Elections. Nathan, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I should say I will predict that if we ever uh, pivot to video with this podcast, people are going to be shocked at my lack of formality <laughs> because uh, I'm my, not my Friday Night Lights t-shirt right now. Yes, the yeah, you've got the Dylan, uh, you know, Dylan High uh, T-shirt. I I didn't know they made those things, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised because here in Washington, you know, there was a big traveling exhibit just for the office, uh, the U.S. version, and so you know, one of the these em- gigantic empty uh, old department stores was a was an entire moving exhibit for uh, uh, the Scranton-based Dunder Mifflin fictional uh, paper company. Uh, so I guess, you know, like swag for, for that stuff, for stuff that's been off the air for a few years. I mean, that, that might that might date you a little bit, Nathan. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time. So that's okay. <laughs> I'm comfortable in my middle-agedness. Uh, well, ho- well, hopefully. Actually, it, it's funny you say that about the video thing where uh, we may be heading that way soon because I know that there's just nothing – that people could possibly want more is to see a couple of middle-aged guys uh, talk uh, to each other. So, I mean, we, we have to give the people what they want. So it's all about the clicks and the views. So that's okay. I get it. <laughs> it is. I mean, there, and again, I think that the the real treasure though will be uh, seeing what you have in your on your uh, meticulously curated bookshelf in the back there. Um, so <laughs> maybe I could have a different vinyl record, you know, every every time displayed. So we'll we'll see. There's lots of opportunity here, Jason. I like it. <laughs> all right. Um, so let's. I guess you know. It, again. You know, we, we cheekily say this sometimes. Uh, you know that that the, there it's always somebody's always running somewhere. There, there is the the political cycle is sort of insatiable. This is a professional undertaking for for a lot of people. Um, you know, you are one of the foremost political handicappers. You have to keep on top of things. You know, all all year long. You know, twenty four. Seven, if if you will, but in in February, uh, you know, more than a year and a half out from from the next election, which will be you know a, a presidential election, it always attracts a little bit more going on. What what are some of the things that I, I'm just curious? What what are some of the things that you sort of hone in on to to 
sort of latch on like, okay, this is the stuff that I need to pay attention to, to figure out like what's going to be happening later on. And I guess let's start with like the presidential stuff. I mean, in some ways we got off to sort of a late start, it felt, you know, in, in presidential campaigning. I mean, the, the current president, Joe Biden, uh, has not signaled his intentions, although he's expected to run for reelection. Donald Trump, the former president has announced, but he was it until uh, a little earlier this week when Nikki Haley, the former uh, South Carolina governor and former UN ambassador under Trump, threw her her hat in the ring. Yeah, I would argue before we talk about the presidential, I promise to come back to it, that there is the temptation to disregard this part of the election cycle as not being important. And I think if, uh, and I would argue to the contrary, and we only need to look at the Indiana Senate race as a good example of that. Uh, in the in Indiana, Senator Mike Braun um, is not running for reelection. He's running for governor instead. And the opening up a seat in a solidly Republican state, you would think that this would be a crowded and competitive primary. And the race is getting close to being over, if I <laughs> carefully, but Congressman Jim Banks got into the race, got the endorsements, um, big names such as former Governor Mitch Daniels, uh, his uh, colleague in the House, Victoria Sparts, and others have declined to run. And that, that race is far down the tracks. And we're just you know, we're not even into March yet of the obvious. So there, this is the time when there are a lot of movements like that. We have other senators who are not running for reelection that, uh, that we could talk about. But uh, this is an, 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 a formative time in the cycle. The presidential race, uh, President Trump announcing uh, last fall that he was running kind of put a pause on things, or at least it uh, on the rest of the field, it took out some of the uncertainty about whether he would run. And now we're starting to see that pick up a little bit. Uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley being the entrant this week. Uh, I expect there to be others, including uh, Senator uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina, uh, other names such as Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State and former Congressman. We have a roll call audience, Mike Pence, others, and, and Governor Ron DeSantis, of course. Um, one of the, I also am looking at who's not running, right? Senator Ted Cruz of Texas announcing he's running for re-election and not president. Um, he'd, Senator, he'd have to shave his beard. I mean, I think I that's mean, the, that's the real thing. I mean, he doesn't want to shave that beard. Unless he wants to go back in time and run like 100 years ago when it was okay to be bearded and be president. Uh, senators, what, Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, you know, saying for at least for right now that they're not running. I think that that's indicative of the shape or the, the race that if they thought that there was a path for them to become president of the United States, they would be in the race, right? I mean, they would be prepping to get into the race, but that tells us something probably about both Trump's strength and probably Governor DeSantis' strength as well. And I'm specifically about Haley since she's getting in. I'm interested to see how um, how much traction she gains because she checks a lot of boxes, right? I mean, she's, she's uh, uh she might be one of the best candidates prepared to lead a former Republican party or a previous version of the Republican party. The question is whether she has the style that resonates with the current primary electorate that wants somebody who is in your face and more brash, maybe at least than than what she is on policy positions. I'm not sure that there's really going to be a lot that folks are going to take issue with, but it's about style rather than specific issue positions. And one thing, you know, to to note too about like this is this is an important and informative time. I mean, like we've seen 
the um, you know some of these races take shape. I mean, you mentioned Indiana. Not not only did Sparts, who we thought might you know uh, run for Senate, not only did she decline to run for Senate, she also said, uh, "I think I've seen enough. <laughs> like I'm not going to even run for re-election to the House. I'm kind of done. I think I'm going to." I don't know, do anything else. Uh, uh, and, and, and it doesn't sound like there's a tinge of regret <laughs> in, in that decision uh, with her. And, and, you know, it's, it's not that no race is ever a slam dunk, but like she would probably be a pretty good, you know, candidate for, for reelection of the house, but she's just, you know, it seems like she's just like, Nope, no thanks. Yeah. She wasn't at risk of a primary. The district got a little bit more Republican in the last round of redistricting, uh, but now we have, you know, we're following a, uh, open seats, both her open seat and now Jim Banks open seat um, up in, in Northeast Indiana. Uh, so in those fields, uh, my, my inside elections colleague, Aaron Covey is, uh, has written recently about both of those. And those are very, very early, right? It's yeah. like the opposite of the Senate race. They're just a, a, pun- a bunch of names uh, without a lot of clarity. And that's what the next few months are going to be, who gets in and how do they fundraise and, and try to, um, make it distinguish themselves from the from the broad fields. And sometimes, you know, congressional endorsements or congressional support for a presidential candidate can be overstated in in terms of how much influence it has with primary voters. But one thing that I I thought was very interesting about Haley's announcement today uh, in, in down in Charleston was that one of the people introducing her was Ralph Norman, uh, congressman, you know, from from South Carolina in the in the delegation. Um, you know, he he was one of the the you know one of the big holdouts against Kevin McCarthy, um, and you know the, they're I, I guess you know maybe in a different uh, time or a different sort of setting he would I would expect him to be a very easy Trump you know like an in, endorsee, but there he was on stage with Haley you know and and saying no this is you know obviously giving his his stamp of, of approval to you know to the former governor. And, you know, South Carolina, again, this is an important state, regardless of what happens with the calendar. I mean, you know, Joe Biden wants to, to make South Carolina the first, uh, you know, primary uh, for, for Democratic politics. It doesn't sound like that. That's not, that might not happen because the Republicans around the state aren't that interested <laughs> in, in, in what Joe Biden wants. But still, it's an early state regardless. And if she picks up traction there, that can sort of take her at a, a least a, a little bit further in the field than if she was, you know, sort of scuffling along for the first four, few primaries. Yeah. I like to think about endorsements in a couple of different ways. The first way is rather dismissive of them. And it's thinking how many people in South Carolina or around the country are thinking, I'm really undecided. Tell me what Ralph Norman thinks, and then I'm going to make a decision, right? Probably not a lot of people, but look at it the other way. Presidential campaigns or campaigns in general are a lot about momentum, trying to get the bandwagon effect that this is this is a campaign that's going places that people want to be a part of. If you want to be on board with a winner, you know, get these are, these are the people that are getting on board, and you can kind of create a sense of momentum. You can get um, earned media attention and stories from endorsements. So I don't want to discount them completely. Um, and, and Norman isn't just a sort of a run of the mill. You know, he has gained his own uh, public uh, recognition or attention you know, that puts him puts him in a little bit different light. But she's gonna, you know, obviously Nikki Haley is going to need more uh, more to come than just uh, Norman's endorsement. Yeah, for sure. So let's go back to what you were talking about when you opened with like the the retirement situation. You know, California 
uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, announced that she was not going to run for re-election. Um, you know, this is capping off sort of a storied career, you know, that started, you know, with her on the San Francisco City Council and sort of forged in tragedy, you know, because she was the acting mayor uh, uh, after the, um, you know, assassination of the sitting mayor uh, and and uh, one of her fellow supervisors, Harvey Milk, back in the 70s. So, you know, this is the end of an era there. And, the, you know, there we already have this this sort of spirited uh, beginning of a primary there with Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee, all House members from from California. One thing that it, it will promise to be is expensive. Uh, our, one of our roll call columnists, Walter Shapiro, said that Democrats should uh, ignore the siren call of pouring a bunch of money uh, in, into this race because it could be spent better almost anywhere else. Uh, than, than, than in California, because most likely it will be a Democrat and most likely, you know, there isn't going to be much separating the way that they vote. Um, so that, you know, th- it, it seems like there's, we're seeing a little bit of a changing of the guard also. I mean, that, that's a little more ephemeral, but it maybe this, you know, make, gets more people involved, particularly at the House level for those seats that are being vacated that Schiff and, and Lee in particular have held for a long time. Yeah, and it will be – we need to also watch Republicans, not because it's going to be a battleground seat, but does this fight extend, this Democrat versus Democrat fight extend to November of 2024, right? Because of California's top two primary, everyone runs together, regardless of party, top two move on to the general election. So um, it could be you know three or more Democrats vying for two slots in the primary to move on to November and then, uh, and then we'll see whether uh, the two Democratic candidates uh, try to cross the aisle and get some Republican support, or if Republicans just sit it out, which kind of tends to be uh, tends to be the case in some of the in some of the previous matchups when there have been a Democrat versus versus a Democrat. Um, I one fascinating thing to watch is that California um, statewide. These statewide offices have been dominated by Northern California politicians for a while. I mean, Padilla is a little bit different, and he was first appointed to the seat. Being a Southern California politician, he was appointed to the seat before getting elected. But when we're talking about um, Newsom and Feinstein and Boxer, I mean, we're talking about Pelosi. Pelosi, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, not statewide, but obviously a, a dominant uh, politician in, in California politics and national politics. Uh, so we'll, that will be interesting, I guess, to see. It's not just the the ideology uh, of the candidates, but also the geography of the candidates that could matter as well. And you know, the, who you mentioned some of the people who are not running: uh, Ted Cruz, uh, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, uh, Marco Rubio, who is who has run for president before. You know, has has not uh, signaled any interest. It seems at this point in, in in another run. His home state colleague Rick Scott, who is would be up for re-election if he chose to run for re-election uh, as a senator would be up. So he would need to make a decision about whether he's running for senator or running for, for president. He's been mentioned as a possible presidential candidate. And and you and and other you know political handicappers have identified Scott as maybe one of maybe the only Republican who is potentially vulnerable in, in 2024. So that's another thing that we're looking at, especially as as Scott Rick Scott has become this foil for pre, uh, President Biden and Democrats who love to read his proposal about uh, dealing how to how to uh, potentially uh, look to the future on entitlements like Social Security and Medicare. 
And, and Scott being at odds with Mitch McConnell, uh, Leader McConnell, uh, at times going back to last cycle, uh, and now kind of continuing on. Yeah, we if we remember that this 2024 Senate class, um, right now all of the initial battleground states are Democrats currently hold them all. Um, this is the first cycle. I went back to 1994, which is the first time that the Rothenberg political report, which was the previous iteration of inside elections, started formally rating races as toss up or lean or favored or, or whatnot. And this is the this is the first cycle going back to 1994, where the entire initial vulnerabilities are all on one party, that the other party didn't have any vulnerable states. And Florida is the one that's sitting just on the outside of the battleground. But and I can't with a with a straight face. I know people are going to have to take my word for it with a with a straight face say that Florida is a swing state or a battleground state anymore. I mean, particularly after um, particularly after Rubio's reelection win and Governor DeSantis reelection in 2022, where they just dominated by 16 and 19 points. Uh, and Republicans, Democrats have only won one statewide race, I believe, in the last decade. Uh, the state ag commissioner. Race. So the, all the burden of proof is on on Democrats in Florida, even if Scott decides to run for president, it would be an open seat, a little more uncertainty. But gosh, you, you have to give Republicans have make Republicans the the initial favorites by a, a wide margin. And we we do have I mean, it, we're, we've been talking about the 2024 election, you know, and, you know, it. it it is worth also mentioning that this is an off year for a few gubernatorial races uh, in in Mississippi and in Louisiana and in Kentucky. Uh, they're all very uh, Republican states, but Democrats have the governor's mansion in two of them. Uh, you know, the John Bell Edwards in Louisiana is term limited, so he is not running for uh, re-election. He he may have been, you know, the, conceivably the only shot, you know, at, at Democrats uh, having that, uh, you know, retaining that seat, if, you know, if, if he were able to run for a third term. And in Kentucky, Andy Bashir uh, is is running for re-election. Uh, a relatively recent. Uh, um, uh, phenomena in Kentucky because it used to be a one and out uh, governorship up until you know a few years back, uh, and then but but let, let's talk about these three races. I mean because again it's very easy to overstate like endorsements is over to over overstate the uh, off year elections or special elections, but they are you have to pay attention to them. Correct, and and I just finished putting this, uh, looking at this and making this point uh, for my roll call uh, my roll call column. Um, there is going to be a temptation to overread into these 2023 races because there is a chance that Republicans do very well, right? That they that they hold the governorship in Mississippi, although it could get competitive, that they defeat an incumbent governor in Kentucky, and that they take over the governorship from Democrats in Louisiana. It's like, oh my God, you know, here's the here, here come the Republicans in 2024. And each of these races, there's some nuance there, and and it is there are some places, particularly Louisiana and Kentucky, where Democrats do hold them, but they also um, obtained them or they won those races under some very specific circumstances. Whether it's Senator David Vitter's scandals in Louisiana, uh, I know that Governor Edwards was reelected since then, so feel free to email any complaints to Jason at uh, I think rollcall.cqrollcall.com <laughs> um, uh, or you know Kentucky, where Bashir won. Uh, a very narrow race over a very unpopular Republican governor in, in Matt Bevin. Um, 
And I go back to not that long ago, just a couple of years when Republican Glenn Youngkin won the governorship in Virginia. You know, and this was a, a state or a commonwealth that Biden won by 10 points in 2020 and thinking, wow, if Republicans are winning Biden plus 10 states, then they could win anywhere, right? And that sort of really set the foundation for the for this for the next year of the election cycle. And when we there were a lot of things that happened, including the Dobbs decision, but when we got to the 2024 at the end, Republicans really weren't challenging and they weren't winning the plus 10 Biden places. Uh, and so we just of course we're going to pay attention to them and and it it could tell us what's going to happen but it also could not right i mean that's the that is the danger in in looking extrapolating results of individual races with some individual circumstances to the future let's flip it around jason uh, to mississippi where democrats have a good candidate in mississippi for governor with public service commissioner brandon presley against Governor Tate Reeves, who is embroiled in a scandal, right? He was lieutenant governor at a time with a significant welfare, uh, how welfare funds, scandal involving how welfare funds were spent in the state. It's the scandal that involves a former Ole Miss Green Bay Packer quarterback, Brett Favre. Uh, it's, a, it's a mess, right? And it could give Democrats an opportunity, but if Democrats win in Mississippi, that doesn't mean they're gonna, there's going to be a blue wave uh, in 2024. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is, I, th- I think that, you know, getting back to the Youngkin example too, it's, you know, it did put us all on high alert of where the president may be vulnerable, where the Democratic Party may be vulnerable. Um, the Democrats did end up losing a seat, uh, a House seat in, in the Hampton Roads area. Uh, Elaine Luria lost her seat uh, in, in 2024, but otherwise they, you know, sort of avoided some of the biggest losses that they that were that were you know being sort of bandied around um but it it again like taking that it, it's not a data set that you can just discard we have to we have to sort of take into account you know where where people are at this point even if it's not where they're going to be in a year yeah and and we and someone might say well if it weren't for the Dobbs decision would Republicans have been challenging in Biden plus 10 places? And the answer is probably, but you can't discount a news event like that because we're probably going to have news events from November of 2023 to November of 2024 that will impact and shape the political environment in the election cycle. Let's talk about redistricting also. So we are, you know, I thought we were done with redistricting, Jason. uh, No, Nathan, we're never done with redistricting. Don't you remember what happened in 2004 and 2005 when they re-redistricted in Texas? (laughs) So I, I, I look at it like this. Yes, there are a bunch of court battles that are, that are playing out that may change district lines in, 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 in states, including in New York and California, which is, that, that would be, that would be big. That would be a big scramble. But we, without looking at that, but without like taking that into account, because there's so many court cases like that, we, we don't want to get into like all, all the different things. What I'm, what I'm kind of curious about, and I'm just curious your thoughts about it is that I feel like the, the, the election that where the very first line of redistricted lines is, is played out under that tends to be weird, right? Because you get, you get a bunch of you tend to get a bunch of retirements. You get to get a bunch of people who, you know, after a while, they're like, you know what, I don't really want to to run a competitive race. I've been coasting for two decades, and I, you know, like I don't want to have to like run against this. Or they may be out of practice, uh, or they may they may be you know thrown into a district 
uh, with a colleague, you know, that, that, hap- that happened in New York, you know, in, in particular with, uh, you know, Carolyn Maloney and, and Jerry Nadler. Nadler came out on top of that. I mean, you know, these are two candidates who, you know, they hadn't had to do a lot of competitive campaigning for a while. So I feel like that first year, that first, the, the two year, you know, <laughs> is always a weird one because it brings out new people. It sweeps out some old people. It creates new seats in places where there weren't seats before, you know, having a, I mean, Montana did used to have two seats and it went down to one now it back, went back to two, but you know, like other places in like Colorado and Oregon that gained seats. I mean, they're, they were almost, you know, cut out of whole cloth, right there. These were places that, you know, there previously were, you know, farmland and, and is now uh, housing divisions and so, subdivisions and so forth. So, what do you think? What What are some of the places that you're looking at where things may reset a little bit uh, in in the coming election cycle? Uh, now that we've gotten that first round out of out of the way, yeah. The two two of the biggest play, states to watch right now that do have to involve legal legal challenges are, are North Carolina and Ohio, um, and. W- and I know that uh, Daniela Altamari, a roll call, and, and Aaron, my colleague, and has already written. Danielle's already written in roll call, and, and Aaron for Inside Elections is going to write about um, write about these. That North Carolina, there's a potential that basically Republicans double the number of seats that Democrats need to take over the majority. For example, right now Democrats need a net gain of five seats uh, to get the majority back. Um, through these redistricting decisions and uh, in court cases, Republicans could could gain another five or so seats. I mean, in North Carolina, uh, North, Republicans have the legislature and it's in effectively the court, the state, the state court right now. And they can they they're expected they're going to redraw the map and the court might allow the legislature to draw it. There is a Democratic governor. The governor doesn't really play a role in redistricting in North Carolina. So Republicans are looking to to gain a handful of more, you know, two, three-ish seats in North Carolina alone. And when we're talking about these narrow margins. That's key. Ohio is another place where uh, we'll say Republicans skirted the rules. I think they that the, the map that's in place is, is technically unconstitutional. Exactly how that gets resolved uh, is is still unclear, um, and you have to get actually back to your your other question. You have new lines also coming in at the same time of other opportunities. For example, in Montana, there are now two districts, but it could be that those two districts are open again if Congressman uh, uh, Ryan Zinke and Matt Rosendale run for the Senate and challenge testers. So those aren't redistricting related, although these districts are new and it's going to complicate things. Or Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, the congresswoman who had to run in a partially new district now may run for the Senate for, for Senator Debbie Stabenow's seat. So you have these new lines with new opportunities all coming into play at the same time that uh, will hopefully be fascinating, interesting, and draw people, readers, to to everything that, that uh, you know our, our publications are doing. But it's it's always evolving and changing. Is the is the short answer? I guess that wasn't a short. Answer. That was a long answer, Jason. Yeah, let, yeah let's call it what it is. It, it was a, it was involved. How's that? <laughs> so as we're you know as we sort of move like you know, in, into like kind of paying attention there. I mean, there's so many polls, you know, out there and there's so many poll aggregators. And I realize that, you know, some, 
some polling aggregators really do, you know, sort of saw off the hard edges on on some of these things. Um, but the it, it, it's it's one of those things like what polls should we be really paying attention to? Like if, if we want to focus on it, if we want to move away from just like looking at the aggregated poll results, if we want to get, you know, like what, what are some of the polls that you pay attention to that you trust that like our, our readers could uh, look to as well and our listeners could look, look to as well? Some of the principles remain the same uh, in the principle of try to look at as many as possible and look for trends right? instead of focusing on individual races or individual polling outlets or pollsters try to take in as much data as possible that that's a principle that goes through all uh, all cycle every cycle one of the at this stage in the cycle though you should also look at think about why is this poll being released right why is the club for growth releasing a poll showing x y or z which candidate are they supporting and do they want or senate leadership fund why are they releasing a poll who do they want you know what are the, what are the motivations behind this survey rather than just the numbers themselves. And you can also take some of these polling numbers and and test them against most re, you know some of the most recent results and say okay does this does this make sense um uh does it pass the smell test but I uh I am definitely in the camp of I always want to see more data rather than less and and even if it's a horse race people say oh the race is two years away it's like ah. I still, I'd still rather, I'd still rather see that data and try to understand. Okay, is Mansion, is Joe Senator Joe Mansion of West Virginia, is he, is he in strong position or not? Yeah, because you can look for trends and compare. Right. And, right. and yeah. these members are looking at polls too, and probably mm-hmm. making some political decisions based on surveys, even though they would never admit it. Uh, they would never admit it publicly. Uh, so they, the, the polling matters, and and I wish I always wish we had more rather than less. Well, um, I feel like the all of the above approach uh, here that we've sort of discussed in a variety of things is, I hope I hope it doesn't discourage people from paying attention because there is so much that, to take into account. But I do think that it is important. It's it's it reminds me uh, here here's here's your 1980s movie uh, reference of the day uh, from Back to School, the Rodney Dangerfield uh, vehicle. Uh, from 1986, when he uh, uh, is 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 at, you know talking about his his clothing store for large men, and he answers, he looks into the camera and says, you know, do you look at a menu and say okay? And I feel like that's what we're doing here. <laughs> we are um, we're 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 saying you need to look at it all, uh, but it is all pretty interesting. So anyway, no no easy answers. <laughs> Exactly, and, that's, and it's still here as we've turned the page to a new year. If we're looking at a menu, we should all just be saying at a menu specifically, maybe less, right? <laughs> maybe we should. We got to stick to our New Year's resolutions. Well, Nathan, thank you very much uh, for for talking about this. Uh, I know it's it's again, it, it, it this is uh, political junkie stuff, but we're political junkies, and hopefully, our listeners are uh, um, f- find this find this interesting uh, and useful. So, thank you uh, for for talking about this. We'll see you next time, and let me know if we're going to pivot to video, so I can be, I can be, better. I can get a cleaner T-shirt. That T-shirt is the one we want. Uh, thank you, also out there, listeners, for uh, for listening to this podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes, Google uh, Play, wherever you get your uh, podcasts, and go to rollcall.com for more uh, from Nathan Gonzalez and from the Roll Call political team. Thanks for listening. Yeah.